Welcome to Shoot Wisely, the content creator's podcast. I'm your host, Amir Brahimi. With over 25 years of production experience, as a documentarian, my cameras have taken me across this country and around this amazing world, capturing and telling stories. The Shoot Wisely podcast is a conversation with fellow storytellers with the goal to inspire. On today's episode, we talk to musician Mark DeClivelo just before the release of Heritage, a deep dive into his Japanese roots and ancestry through the lens of jazz and electronics. This is our conversation. I mean, I'm a musician. I, I, I feel like a jazz musician in the purest sense of the word. Like I, I like to be spontaneous and improvise and work with whatever I have, which might be just a piano. It might be drum machines and samplers and synths. Um, I might be in the studio, I might be on stage. It could be for the dance floor, it could be for like a mental trip out. It could, it could be one of any things. And if I wanted to kind of say, what's that called? I mean, to me, that's what a jazz music, musician is. You know, it's not so much, I don't mean that like playing the language of jazz so much as how I perceive it as, a, as an ethos and a creative approach. What is the first instrument you played? I started with piano. Like my dad decided when I was four years old, you will learn the piano. I, I didn't even have a choice about it. So that was kind of funny. Um, but yeah, piano is the starting point. Did you take to it or did you not like it? Or? I liked piano. Um, it, was, it was all classical lessons and I wanted to improvise and play modern music and jazz. And the, my teacher had no idea how to do that. So I stopped with that teacher. And I basically, I guess, was self-taught with modern piano. But I ended up stopping playing for a decade when I lived in London. And I think that's because, you know, like I said, my dad forced me to learn this instrument. I didn't choose it. So I didn't feel like I had my own emotional relationship with it. So I had to leave it for like a decade. It wasn't until I came to LA and reconnected with it that I was like, oh, wow. Yeah, the piano, that's like, that's my first instrument. In those 10 years, were you doing something else? Were you playing something else? I mean, I was playing a lot of keyboards, but there's a, there's a difference between an acoustic piano and a synthesizer, like completely different. Um, so for me, those are, those are literally two different instruments. You know, a producer would be like, Mark, let's put some piano on this track. It's like, nah, man, let's put some synth on there. And just, I was just sidestepping whenever I could. Um, and you know, I, I dabbled a bit when I was growing up, like I played a little bit of violin, a little bit of saxophone, messed around with some mallets like xylophone and vibraphone. But not, I mean, I, I didn't spend enough time with any, any of those instruments where I'd feel like I can play that. Like, you know, I could probably pick up a guitar and play a chord and sample it and then cut, chop it up and reprogram it. Um, but for me, yeah, primarily the keyboard as a musical interface, that's been the main thing. So you just mentioned sampling. How did you learn arranging? I mean, arranging is, I guess it's kind of the big, the big mystery for a lot of people because it's so easy now, especially with technology, to, to create an idea and you've got a loop which is just vibing and bouncing and all that but to create to make it into a story that's arrangement and I think I probably learned that firstly from listening to big band records when I was little my dad had all these big band records Count Basie and Duke Ellington and all that music is I mean it's kind of loops in a way like it might be a 16 bar loop of certain chords but the way it changes that's the arrangement and so I'd hear that and then hearing Hearing Michael Jackson records, the way, the way Quincy and Michael would arrange songs, you know, you have the intro, you have the verse, you have the pre-chorus, the chorus, and the bridge, and you know, it's a classic, classic song form, but 
you know, those are things you hear and they can be applied to like, you know, listening to a Dilla track, you know, there's an arrangement there, you know, he has a sense of where things are going from and going to, you've got to have your, your, your destination in mind and know how to get there. But it's part of the fun, man. For me, it's like the arranging, that's the coloring in. That's the cool stuff. So especially doing it live with the band or solo, you know, creating those arrangements on the fly live, that's, that's a lot of fun. So many producers, amazing producers, can't play a single fucking instrument. Mm. When did you realize that what your dad made you do was so beneficial to what you do now? So there was a point when I was, I was quite young and people would say to me, you'll regret it if you give up, you know, you'll thank your dad for this and all this, and it's like, whatever. But of course they're right. I mean, I, I wish I'd spent more time with the piano on a, on, in classical music. You know, there's some amazing, amazing depth of artistry in that music, and what it brings to you as, an, as a player is, is unparalleled. Um, but, you know, I was young and headstrong. I was like, nah, I'm, I'm out. Um, so I think... Pretty much as soon as I started playing professionally, I really appreciated And that would have been in New Zealand. I was like probably 21 um, and started playing, playing jazz gigs. And it worked. You know, p people enjoyed the music, the audience built, and we got to do more gigs. And so I did appreciate that, yeah, I'm making my living off playing the piano. And as much as I wasn't impressed with my dad's you know, method, <laughs> I appreciated what he did for me. So, so much comes from our heritage, so much comes from who we are, even if, if we, we don't realize it, eventually, if you're a conscious person, it comes out. Mm -hmm. So, let's talk about your heritage. Where, where, were you, where were you born and where did you grow up? So, I was born and grew up mostly in Auckland, New Zealand. Um, my mum's Japanese, and my dad actually lived in Japan for 20 years. So, he, as good as, turned native. You know, totally bilingual, bicultural. So the way we were raised in New Zealand, my brothers and I, it's like our house was my parents' own private Japan in Auckland, New Zealand. Like the garden was Japanese and the, the house was, like, was Japanese style. We'd eat Japanese, we'd speak Japanese. And um, it was almost like once you leave the property, then, then you're in New Zealand. <laughs> um, so that, that was, a, was a really cool way to grow up and it was unique. I mean, I, I had no peers who were similar. I think there was one Pakistani kid and one Chinese kid in my class, and that was it. Everyone else was either European New Zealander or Polynesian New Zealander. And I ended up you know, feeling a sense of otherness around the European New Zealanders gravitating towards a lot of the Polynesian New Zealanders. Maori, Samoans, Tongans, Cook Island kids. You know, in high school, that became you know, making, making rap and R&B with them. But that kind of... That kind of, for my, my own personal search for heritage, it, I definitely have to look beyond New Zealand to find, you know, my roots. And Japan provided a lot of that. You know, growing up, I was in Japan once a year from age 10, like every summer holiday. And then I finished high school there. Um, so it really, it really became a second home to me. But also culturally, just a touchstone. It's like, yeah, I can relate to this. I, I get this. So it's kind of interesting, you know, having two halves of you, yourself where you really get two different things and trying to bring those together. It's been a trip, but, you know, something I'm really grateful to have that combination. What part of Tokyo? Uh, Japan? Um, Tokyo, yeah. So my mum's my my family's from Tokyo. A lot of them live in Yokohama. 
Um, I finished high school in Yokohama. So, yeah, mostly that area. More recently, I've been spending a lot of time in Kansai, like around Kyoto and Osaka and on the West Coast. Um, and that's amazing too. It's just such a, it's such a vibrant place. And for me, like the older I get, the more I appreciate it as, it's, as a spiritual home, as an ancestral home. You know, I've, I've, I've taken it into my music to a point where I'm using my own art as a, as a process of self-discovery and, my own, and a self-identity you know, self kind of search and understanding. Yeah. Um, let's talk about Heritage, the, the, the project. How did that come about? Ayahuasca. <laughs> um, Heritage, I mean, a few years ago, I, I, I wanted to do something incorporating my, my Japanese roots. And I dabbled in this a little bit. Like, I go to Japan and play, um, actually, went, like, 20 years ago, I go and... My mum would be saying, if you're going to play in Japan, you've got to play some Japanese tunes. You, know, you should arrange some Japanese tunes. And I, was, I didn't want to do that. <laughs> um, but I ended up doing it. But I didn't really connect with what I would call the DNA of the music. It was more like, okay, let me make this tune sound hip. I know how to make this sound hip. It was irrelevant that it was a Japanese folk song to me. Um, but that was the first touchstone. And I also did a show actually in Japan... Wow, so 1996, it was jazz trio, piano-based drums with a kagura group, which is a traditional Japanese form of theater where you have dancers and a narrator and instrumentalists. And we just did this kind of free jazz meets kagura morphy thing. That was fun. I'd love to do that again. So maybe there were seeds even planted then. But then in more recent times in LA, you know, there's a huge Japanese-American community here. I've really connected with, um, especially the JACCC downtown in Little Tokyo, the, um, the Japanese American Cultural Community Center, Center for Cult. <laughs> There's three C's in there. <laughs> um, but you know, connecting with, with that community in LA has made me think, oh yeah, there's connection here. And I can, you know, I'm not Japanese American, but it still is part of that same di diaspora. Um, and so I ended up doing actually for grand performance is a show called Mirai no Rekshi, which means the history of the future. Um, and that show was actually when I wrote a lot of music, which has gone on the Heritage album. And so a lot of that music was just me reaching into my own memories of growing up Japanese and how that feels and what that means to me. And, you know, folk songs I'd hear or folk stories I'd hear or as I grew older and I learned about Buddhism or Shintoism and, or, or the warriors, the samurai code and you know, things like that, I just kind of tap into these memories and feelings and write music from that. And that was, you know, a lot of that was premiered at, the, at this concert um, at Grand Performances. Then about a year later, I felt like it was this time to bring it back to life. And so I wrote some more music and we recorded three nights at the Blue Whale in Little Tokyo. And then it was one day in studio, I kind of mashed that all together a little bit and ended up with these two albums, you know, Heritage and Heritage 2. And it's amazing because when I play this music, I have a sensation that I've never had playing any music in my life. And it's kind of a knowingness and a, 
it's a it's maybe it's a feeling of honesty and in the past you know i i love all sorts of stuff and i could i could be playing a spiritual jazz gig with someone but in my head somewhere it's like this is spiritual jazz mode or i might be rocking a dance party in you know in tokyo or somewhere and i'm like this is kind of house broken beat mode and i enjoy it i love that all but this music was different it wasn't it wasn't even a mode it was just this is me so i felt like i've finally found a way to really you know express my own self and my own journey and how i reflect on my place in the world and what that identity means to me through my art so there's a little bit of vulnerability there like for a mo for a moment when i when i committed to making an album i was thinking i'm really putting myself on the line here <laughs> but um i think because i know it's been a it's been a huge kind of journey for me understanding myself more and my ancestry and i'm so sure on that that now i know if someone doesn't like it it's like cool you don't have to like it <laughs> this is me and i get to play this music and kind of delve into you know my family and my my heritage and my ancestors every time i play the music it's it's like it's encoded with this kind of magic for me and i i just hope i hope some of that translates in my um infant understanding of japan i would i would guess that the japanese approach for an album such as this would be to go into the studio and do it over and over and over again until you get it right <laughs> why did you decide to record it live when you play live magic happens it's there's something and playing for, playing in front of an audience actually creates magic too there's definitely a transaction of energy between the audience and the musicians and the way the music kind of manifests its energy in the space when the space is being held by all these people who are focused on on soaking it up i mean that's that's powerful stuff and you cannot replicate that under any other circumstances i mean this music was never about you know everything's got to be note perfect you know it's all about capturing the essence of the the music and letting these compositions breathe and just come to life so by playing them at the blue whale in front of a live audience it it basically forces us as musicians to explore the space that these compositions do manifest into that they occupy and that's that's amazing i mean so you know what was captured for the record i mean it is a mixture of a bit of, stu of studio as well but then in studio we just played the set we kind of did, did the same thing but without an audience um but you know i just i just wanted to to capture that vibe and if you come to a show you if you've heard the record if you know the record then you'll recognize all the music but you'll hear it in a way which is so you know bespoke for that moment how do you go about choosing the musicians for this most of the musicians are my, are my regular band um in LA so i'm really you know grateful to have them around they're killing musicians i mean Brandon Combs on drums he's been with me a few years Brandon Owens likewise playing bass he's been with me for a few years Josh Johnson he's been with me about 4 years Carlos Nino i mean he's just <laughs> he's amazing you know Carlos plays this kind of extra percussion vibe and it's almost like what's he doing it's very mystical but what the energy it brings and the way it helps hope focus and hone the creative moments in the music is is amazing um 
Tailana Inomoto on violin on one track. She's also half Japanese here in LA. I've been playing with her on and off. And I didn't even know she was half Japanese. Like she goes by another name. I was like, man, your name's Inomoto, you're Japanese. <laughs> but yeah, it's all, you know, it's a really great crew of guys who, who play without any kind of sense of ego and they play with a lot of heart. And that's all I wanted. Like I just wanted people who could help me bring these moments to life. And, and they were all, you know, really open to my vision of each composition. I mean, there's a story behind every piece and they all kind of took that on board and, and made that part of the story of how we play the music. So you go from playing heritage to playing sets like church. Is it, a, is it like a different day for you? Is it like a different vibe for you? Is it, is it like a whole different approach? I mean, playing, playing in different settings is a different emotional and mental and spiritual experience for me. Um, I love, like with church, when we have, we have the dance floor rocking and it's still really super musical, but just underpinned by you know, beats and electronics. I love that. And when the crowd is really is realizing that, you know, there, there isn't a DJ playing records for them. There's a guy kind of me like a DJ, but I'm making records for you. You know, when they, when that kind of penny drops and they're loving the music, it's, it gets a little transcendental sometimes in a, in a kind of a, in a DJ culture kind of way. And that's, that's a vibe. Um, Heritage is a whole other vibe. I think it's much more nuanced and, and there's touches of, what I love about dance music in it, but they're more subtle and it's more of an experience where I would imagine people would want to sit and kind of almost take it in as a meditation. If it was too extremes, it would be almost be like ambient music and techno, but they're not that extreme away from each other. But you know, those two musics are related and you can see how the same person can love them both in different circumstances. And that's what I do. It's, it's like if you, uh, if you want to come to all my gigs, you're going to see very different things. You know, some stuff might be really weird. Some stuff might be straight dance floor and everything in between. I love that. I mean, I wouldn't want to play the same gig over and over and over again. <laughs> um, just as far as like feeding off of the crowd, like uh, when you're doing church, when you're creating the music right there, what is the difference between, like, let's say, L.A., like the standard, where people mm -hmm. are just vibing the fuck out, mm -hmm. and like Tokyo, where people so, are like, they have their phone and they're shooting you and they're, and they're just watching? Because there is appreciation to that. Totally. Yeah, I mean, the, the Japanese appreciate it in a really, in a, in a very civilized way, let's say. I remember, I remember going to see The Roots one time at the Blue Note in Tokyo, and the Blue Note's a supper club. And, you know, The Roots were doing their thing. <laughs> There was one point where they had this huge breakdown and Black Thoughts rhyming and just killing it and they, he just built it up and the whole thing built up and you could just see it. You know, if we were anywhere else in the world, the crowd would be going nuts right now. But we're in the Blue Note in Tokyo. So everyone's just sitting there, you know, <laughs> little clap at the end. <laughs> but I love that. It's like they, they just, they, they don't have a, they don't have a need to kind of conform to some European Western preconception about how you appreciate music. You know, I've been in clubs in Japan where people sing every word of every song and these songs just came out and they're not mainstream 
but they're, they're there on the dance floor the whole time and they're singing all this stuff. I've never seen that happen in America, like ever. <laughs> so, and there's a curiosity I think in Japan about, um, about I guess niche music. And that's everywhere, but in Japan it's like you can go to the, the toilet in a restaurant and they're playing Coltrane in the toilet. I mean, that's how kind of ubiquitous it is. So it's a very different, very different thing. But I love, you know, like when I play in LA, especially when it's church, like the, the dancers come out, some of my capoeira crew comes out and we get this whole movement thing happening. And that's great. I mean, I'm honestly more preoccupied in my own world than I, but I can still, you know, I, I sense it and I see little bits of it. And I, I love seeing that kind of connection with the audience. And yeah, that does happen in Japan too. There's definitely some dancers out there. But by and large, it's a, it's a more, it's a more, I want to say cultured listening experience there in a way. Yeah. Is there, is there a difference in, in what you receive and what you give? Absolutely. There's definitely a difference in what I would play in any different room anywhere in the world. I mean, it could be, I was in Detroit recently, you know, just being in Detroit affected how I made, played the music. There's just no question about it. Or if I was in Johannesburg, you know, when I'm there and, I'm, and they, they love their house music, but they like it quite kind of mid-tempo, they don't like the too fast and, and I, dig, I dig what they like. So I'm like, cool, let me kind of take in a little bit of that vibe. So yeah, wherever I am, it adapts. Um, let's talk about equipment. <clears throat> mm. Like you just have all this shit all over the place. Mm. It's just like chords and everything like that. Like, um, how difficult is that? Like when, you, like let's say, like for for instance, Speakeasy at, at mm. Tokyo. How, how long did it take you to set up? Was some of that stuff already set up for you? Or? No, not really. I mean, it, it takes about forty-five minutes to set up. Um, the 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 equipment I use and how I use it, the workflow, that's been a work in progress for. I'd say. Whew, Almost 20 years. It started with an MPC and an analog synth and a Rhodes. And as technology evolved, the setup evolved. And as I'd, as I'd imagine more things I'd want to do, I'd have to work out different ways to do it. And then, you know, computers really came in, in a big time, in a big way. So I eventually changed the rig from analog to digital. And now at this point, it's like a playground. I mean, if I, I, if I imagine something, I can just create it. You know, it's, kind of, it's like having a vocabulary. You know, if you, if you know words and you have a thought, you can make a sentence. It's that simple. When the technology doesn't work, it can be a little challenging. Um, but I've gotten pretty good at troubleshooting, you know, while I play. Uh, but yeah, it just, it's, for me, it's like the ultimate kind of canvas and palette. You know, I have all the paints I could want, all the brushes I could want, the, pat, the canvas is there. Now I just gotta bring it to life. And in Heritage, how much are you using some of that equipment, or, do you, or is it mainly just these? So on on Heritage, I have all that I have all that equipment, but I'm using it in a more subtle way. Like I'm I'm running live effects on the piano and the horn players. I'm sampling the horn players or the piano or the keyboards. Um, I'm programming a little bit of percussion. Like you know, at church, I'm just banging out kicks and snares and like beats. But with Heritage, it is more nuanced, and I want the live drummer to be the primary drummer. 
So I'm basically programming like additional kind of percussion samples and stuff like that. Yeah. Okay, last thing. When you're rehearsing, um, what is the most important thing that you're trying to do? Are you trying to get it perfect or are you just <laughs> trying to... Yeah, when... Actually, Josh, Josh Johnson, the sax player, we'd been playing for four years, I think, and we had a rehearsal. And he said to me at the rehearsal, he's like, man, I was just thinking today, we've been playing together for four years, and this is our fourth rehearsal. I never used to rehearse. <laughs> I was just like, nah, the music is what it is. Um, but now I, I tend to rehearse more often, I guess. And all I'm trying to achieve is to have everyone in the band familiar with the, the motifs, so that the melody which constitutes the composition and the chords that go with it. You know, usually in rehearsal, I'll stop everyone playing as soon as we're through the melody. It's like, you know what it sounds like? Now when we get to this, when we do this at the gig, everyone's gonna be understanding what the plan is with the melody. After that, it's anyone's game. You know, that's when the magic really starts to happen. It's like these compositions just kind of set the, set the foundation for the moment and then collectively as a band, we bring that moment to life. And you can't practice that. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the Shoot Wisely podcast. I'm your host, Amir Brahimi. For more, visit shootwisely.com.